Ovid's Flea by P.J. Edgel. Episode 3. Mark. The car service was outside in the driveway. Prior to Uber, it had been rare anywhere around Detroit to use a car service, but that's all Mark had known. How else do people get to the airport? And leave your car there? Never. His baby did not belong in an airport parking lot, even for a few short days. He was excited about this trip to New York. He was going to spend time with an amazing man and see and do things he hadn't done in a long time. Carlos Ritango had the best collection of sports cars in the United States, particularly vintage sports cars and particularly Jaguars. Mark had learned early on to put your faith in things you owned, things you purchased with your own power. Nothing else was to be trusted. New York was like Mecca to a man like Mark Harrington. Power and sex made the streets pulsate. It was a beat that made him prowl, secure in his conquest. He liked that. He liked the fact that it felt like a bullfight. Aggression and testosterone fighting each other to see who would come out on top. Julia still didn't understand why she couldn't go on this trip and had pouted. The pout used to be one of the few things that weakened him, and the unfamiliar feeling had made him think he was in love with her adding her to the collection of pretty, shiny things he owned. The pout remained the only remnant of their courtship. Its power weakened, but he let her continue to believe that it devastated him. It ultimately worked in his favor, to let her think she occasionally gained the upper hand. He had learned that she operated well with him when she was the center of his attention, and in turn, his life went along uninterrupted. Attention, jewelry, and sex were the currency of their marriage. He'd take her another time and make it all about her. But this weekend was for him. Cars and sex. A rather beautiful combination, he mused. He'd worry about the level to which he would pay Julia later. As it was, he had already planned the first deposit. He gulped down some orange juice and put the glass in the sink. Wait, was the housekeeper off this weekend? Mmm... Better put it in the dishwasher. He didn't need Julia upset with him. She'd been known to call and bitch about inane things. This weekend had to be perfect. He wanted no interruptions. His attention needed to be on the business at hand. He reached in his jacket and pulled out a black velvet box. He carefully placed it on the baby's chair with a card. He knew this would ensure there were no interruptions for the weekend and sex when he returned. The first deposit had been made. As the black Escalade pulled out of his driveway and the gates closed behind him, Mark was positively giddy. He surveyed his property line and, for the millionth time, appreciated himself and where he'd landed. He thought about Carlos and wondered why he'd never invited him for a weekend. Carlos was really a mentor of sorts to him. Mark had managed to get him some Cuban cigars and a bottle of wine. They'd met when Mark had begun his career 15 years before as an investment banker, and Carlos had been his boss. Extremely successful, Carlos had retired early and had remained in his life, the father he never had, or really to replace the poor one he'd rejected. So whenever Mark came into the city, he made time to drive one of Carlos's magnificent cars. They never acknowledged it, but Mark knew 
Carlos thought of him as the son he'd always wanted. He'd always encouraged Mark's belief in himself. But if there was one thing Mark Harrington believed, it was that he had created himself. He sprung from no one's loins but his own. They were, after all, the seat of all his power. He decided he would invite Carlos and his wife for a week. Mark started to think about the weekend ahead. He figured he'd get into the city, check into his hotel, and then map out the rest of his time. He knew he would spend all day Sunday with Carlos out at his place in Westchester before flying home. Though Mark was not easily impressed, his awe never ceased to silence him when he viewed Carlos's garage for his Jaguars. The garage was about the size of an airplane hangar. Tonight, in the city, though, he would explore the other reason for the trip. Sex. Sex in New York was like your choice of a fantastic menu. So many choices. He hoped Jesse had the same attitude about it. Jesse. He needed to carve out some time for him. After all, this trip was his suggestion. Mark hadn't been with a man since college. It was in college that he discovered that variety could help satiate his appetite for sex. The number of women he'd had was probably in the thousands, but what he was remembering with a man was that the greatest thing was quite simply that he was a man. They had the same attitude about sex. It was recreational. It could be fun, and there were never strings attached. No one gave better blowjobs than a man. And Mark had learned that in the currency of homosexuality, the power came with how good-looking you were, and he was rich. It had been an easy market to conquer. So... Jesse James, as he liked to call him, was a unique and fun distraction in his life and a good fit into the general scheme of extramarital activity. He wasn't a cheap whore. He was the same as Mark, married with children. In fact, that was how they met, through their kids' peewee soccer team. Truth be told, Mark had noticed Jesse's wife first, a stunning Asian woman, tiny and exquisitely beautiful. Then he saw Jesse her complete opposite, blonde and athletic. Their opposing attractiveness had fascinated him. But then he'd run into Jesse at the gym, and after that, a peewee soccer picnic. And that's how it had started. It began in earnest at the picnic, where the kids played past their bedtimes, and the parents drank enough to remain faithful, but enough to bring flirting to the danger zone. Mark, still a little curious and attracted to Jesse, put him, not his wife, on the roster and felt that he'd found an alternative source of fun, a soccer dad. To Mark, the deliciousness of the situation came from the immense joke of it all. To the world, they appeared to be two businessmen or dads going about their business. But the joke was that the blonde businessman gave the dark-haired businessman the best blowjobs and it brought life back where the dark-haired one liked it on the edge. But the timer was ticking on this situation. Mark knew, like all thrills, he would be bored soon. He could feel boredom's familiar tentacles starting to take hold. Not necessarily of men, but of Jesse. He figured, now that he'd reintroduced it, every once in a while, he'd throw a man in to mix it up with a good blowjob. But with Jesse, the situation was changing. Even though he'd kept it to his pleasure only, he knew Jesse was falling for him, and it slightly turned his stomach. It's not that he disliked him. It was the attachment. He always got out before anyone got attached. He only allowed one attachment in life, and that was his wife. 
but he knew how to handle that one. He knew the currency. The plane touched down in New York. Jesse and Mark met at the curb. Jesse had sat a few rows behind Mark in business class and had given him a curt nod as he boarded the plane. As they got into the town car, Jesse suddenly stopped and stepped back, knocking Mark. His movements were jerky as he dodged a bee exiting the car. Jesse mumbled something about being allergic. The car ride into the city, they chatted about business, kids, and sports. Normal enough. As the car came out of the midtown tunnel, they both were excited. Mark watched Jesse as he sat forward, slightly in the seat, looking at the city. Jesse's body was strong. He had been a swimmer in college, Jesse had once told him, and he still worked out rather fanatically, having built a gym into his house in addition to a membership to a gym in town. Mark's own excitement increased, and he wondered what else Jesse could show him. Maybe he'd carve out more time for Jesse this weekend. Ugh, Jesse was listing useless facts about the city now. This is where he had met his wife. This is where they used to go for cheap tacos. His favorite restaurant was now a parking lot. Mark wanted him to shut up and turn all his attention to him. He thought about reaching out to touch some part of it, but he didn't want his lust misinterpreted as a sign of affection. And with an assumed affection, it could be interpreted as attachment, the last thing he wanted from Jesse. Jesse. Jesse's mood was euphoric, and apart from the near miss with the bee, everything was feeling perfect. The bee would have ruined everything, killing the trip. Literally. The car entered the midtown tunnel, and Jesse thought he might burst, totally implode. He'd never done anything like this before. Going away with a lover? Yeah, he and Annie had gone away, but never had he ever had such a clandestine meeting. It felt like espionage. On the trip into the city from the airport, he had talked about the city and remembered his life there. He wanted Mark to know him, inside and out. He wanted to tell him everything. The talking had been a distraction from his mounting desire for Mark. If life was different, maybe they could have enjoyed each other in the back of the car, he thought. But life wasn't different. It just was what it was. Clandestine meetings that allowed him to reach out and say hello to himself. Jesse had known he was gay from about the age of 10, but as he grew up and saw what that life offered, he decided it wasn't for him. At first, he buried the feelings and desires. Then he explored them and explored them. It got to a point where he was the it boy for a time in New York. He knew the clubs, he knew the people. It only lasted a year and a half, but felt like 10. He'd burned out and he knew he didn't want that life either. And that's when he met Annie. He'd literally moved out of his old life in Chelsea to a studio on the Upper East Side, attempting to bury the boy and reinvent himself. In those days in New York, you could do that. Change neighborhoods and never be seen again. Disappear and reinvent. He knew of a few guys who had done it. Because once he'd done the same, he joined the fraternity. He'd see them on the Upper East Side, no longer the pretty party boys, but now somewhat fastidious and model boyfriends or husbands to unsuspecting Burberry and Prada-clad women. It was easy to fall into a life with Annie. An artist? She found him sensitive and caring. When they met, he told her he'd experimented with sex and drugs, and she liked that about him. It made him a better lover, she had said. 
It also fit her self-perception as the wild artist, even though she came from a comfortably wealthy and artificially liberal Westchester family. The juxtaposition of wild Annie and her parents had never ceased to amuse him. Annie was part of a wave of Asian adoptions. Her parents, well-educated, successful New Yorkers with two male children already, desperately wanted a girl and adopted her from China as an infant. She never ceased to fascinate him, which is why the cage was warm and safe. Fuzzy was how he described it to himself. Until now. Until Mark. Mark. The hotel wasn't necessarily his choice, but he couldn't stay at the Waldorf for this type of trip. The Soho Grand was a better fit. He'd used it before for weekend meetings with women, or really just for sex trips, to New York. He really only needed a few things on this trip, a bed and some security, or privacy. As he surveyed the suite, he thought it was a good omen for the trip that his needs were already being met. The bellman left, and he heard the second set of doors to the suite firmly close. Looking at Jesse staring out the window, his shirt seemed tighter. He knew that Jesse was aware of him, watching him. Shut the curtains, he ordered, and Jesse obeyed. Jesse turned to face him, and all the rising desire seeped through the surface. It oozed out between them, but still neither moved. They just watched each other. Mark felt the increasing danger in the air, and he liked it. He was about to cross into new, uncharted territory, a place he really liked. Life was a smorgasbord, and each time with Jesse, he was reacquainting himself with something he remembered liking. To Mark, sex was one of the most important things in life. He never planned to be faithful in marriage. In fact, he found the concept ridiculous. Jesse had begun to approach him. The room was semi-dark, with the strong sunlight casting a glow behind the closed curtains. He let Jesse kiss him. In their months of clandestine meetings, this was only the second or third time they had kissed. He had resisted any attempts telling Jesse that kissing was romantic, and he saved romance for women, particularly his wife. Kissing a guy was just not something he was into. It still felt weird. The rough beard against his own. But today... The sensation of rough cheek and rough tongue, combined with Jesse's scent, made him think of playing a contact sport, and he mused that maybe that's what he always liked about rugby. Kimberly. She had been looking forward to this weekend for a long time. It was pride, so that meant a quiet weekend for her. Straight men, or her clients anyway, seemed to leave the city in droves this weekend. And the gay men obviously didn't need the services of her or her girls. She told Tommy she wouldn't be joining him at his annual mandatory pride brunch. She needed some time alone to think. The last surgery hadn't been what she would call successful. She tried a new doctor, and he'd gone too far to her. Subtlety had been the key, and she felt he'd changed her too much. She'd all but ended any personal business, as she'd lost interest in the game she'd played with herself and the delicious joke, as she got her life, was losing its flavor. To a certain extent, she didn't care about her personal business. All the fun was gone. At this point, all she wanted was to look in the mirror 
and feel comfortable in our own skin. And in the past few years, that it seemed impossible. And with the surgeries, she pushed it even further away. But being only a madam didn't necessarily appeal either. She could do real estate and keep a couple girls in the Soho location as well. Or really start practicing and become the psychologist that the sign on the door and her degree said she was. Even Rich Johns had problems. And she'd been working with men on their issues for her whole career. What would be so different? It seemed like a good plan, but she really needed to think about it. And then there was the question of real companionship. A man, not a John, or any of the big-hearted jerks he used to offer to take her away from all this. And into what? She used to think. Angelica had never seemed to be lonely, and that's what had inspired Kimberly. No reliance on men or anyone, not emotionally or financially. But now as Kimberly studied her face in the mirror, she realized she was not Angelica. She wasn't that strong. Angelica Suga had written the definitive feminist novel of the early 90s about a woman inspired by the mistresses of Europe's royalty to become a prostitute and madam. The book had been a thinly disguised memoir of Angelica's own life, and it made her rich and a sensation. When Kimberly had been a TA in a women's studies class, she had invited Angelica to speak to it. Kimberly had been fascinated from the moment she met her. She had loved the power that emanated from Angelica, a mixture of sexuality and supreme confidence. Kimberly and Angelica had become friends, and eventually she'd pried the truth out of Angelica about her business. In those days, Kimberly had considered herself a rebel maybe even a sophisticated social anarchist. Though she was against violence, and she despised those stupid kids dressed all in black. She felt the truest way to undermine authority was to appear to live within its confines, while secretly unsettling the foundations. The intellectual riddle that she asked, Can you take the ultimate power that women have over men? that religion and puritanical societies have dirtied or sullied and make it a source of power, a source of pride. The intellectual argument is how she'd won Viola over to join her. Together, they figured if they ever were caught, they'd probably only spend a few years in prison and then would write memoirs like Angelica. But now, Kimberly sighed at the thought of her young self. Ugh. The asinine arrogance of youth. She'd never counted on the years flying by. Loneliness or Viola getting out because of love. As only youth does, Kimberly never planned past making the delicious joke work. And work it had. But now, years later, with Angelica dead and everyone else who ever meant anything to her gone, she realized the difference between she and Angelica was necessity. Angelica had clawed her way out of abuse and poverty. Kimberly hadn't clawed a thing. She'd created a life out of boredom, and it kept her occupied for years. But then when it began to lose its luster, she turned on her face, and now with that gone awry, she was, for the first time in her life, forced to question her choices. The one thing she knew, she wanted her youthful confidence back. She wished Vi hadn't left and disappeared, and for the thousandth time in a week, 
She missed a friend. The years hadn't alleviated that pain and sense of abandonment. Who else did you tell your secrets to? She was tired of talking to herself, and even Tommy, as dear and sweet as he was, had never replaced Vi. She still struggled with this reality of no Vi. Vi had known everything about her and vice versa. It was with Vi that she finally cried about Johnny, six years after his suicide. And it was Kimberly who held Vi's hand when she had cried about an abortion. They had done the dramatic and mundane together. Everything from laundry and bills to starting the business together. Both having the degrees in psychology, they understood the dynamics of what they had created in each other. A surrogate spouse. That is, until Viola got married and left. Kimberly moved to the kitchen and poured herself more coffee. She knew the mood that was coming on, the dark one, that always started with Vi and then moved on to Johnny. It was a vortex, as Joan Didion called it. To Kimberly, it was a vortex of abandonment. But the argument raged in her head. Who had abandoned whom? The last time she saw Johnny, she had calculated that they hadn't been a couple in about six years since beginning college. It had been a coincidence that they both had moved into the city. She for undergrad and grad at Columbia, and Johnny eventually to start his career at Goldman Sachs. They would occasionally call and meet for a drink, and it was one of those times that she told him of the plan to start the business. She thought he would get what she kept calling the delicious joke on society. The old Johnny would have, but the Johnny that showed up was depressed. And it wasn't until she told him and saw the look on his face that she realized she wasn't having a drink with an old friend. She was having a drink with her ex-boyfriend, who was hoping to win her back, get married, and have a house in the suburbs. You selfish, self-centered, self-absorbed bitch. What the hell has happened to you? You know what, Kimmy? Go fuck yourself. I don't think you're very funny. That was his rebuttal after she had panicked and been firm in her utter refusal of him in that life. She told him she would never marry him. That was the last time they spoke. And three months later, he threw himself on the subway tracks. She'd heard that he left her a note, but she wouldn't go to the funeral. And she wouldn't pick up the note from his family. Kimberly couldn't face him, especially his little sister. She had been devastated when Kimberly broke up with Johnny. She couldn't understand how anyone could reject her handsome, older brother. Mark. The early afternoon was upon them, and Jesse looked like he wanted to lounge around in bed all afternoon, the thought of which was turning Mark's stomach. Time in bed, next to another human being, was only for Julia. He never slept next to anyone else. He didn't trust anyone else. You never closed your eyes on a total stranger. Though Jesse was not a total stranger and he wasn't getting paid, Mark didn't like to break his own code of conduct, so he wasn't about to sleep next to Jesse. Besides, the thought was really not appealing. When relaxing in bed, he wanted soft. He wanted curves. He didn't want to feel his own body or something like it. This room could be Jesse's room. He'd take the other one in the suite. He sat on the edge of the bed, planning the rest of his afternoon. He should contact Carlos to plan tomorrow and maybe hit a museum. 
He wondered what Kimberly was doing for dinner tonight. He hadn't seen her in about six months, but she was good dinner company and quite simply the best in her business. Damn, he should have thought to call and plan ahead to see her. Back in the day, last-minute dinner reservations at Balthazar's were even easier to get than last-minute appointments with Kimberly. It would cost him, he knew. His thoughts stopped abruptly as he felt Jesse's hand rubbing his back. He didn't look at Jesse as he stiffened and stood up immediately. What are you doing for the rest of the afternoon, he said curtly. I thought maybe more of the same with you. Mark decided to pretend he hadn't heard him. He continued walking through the living room of the suite and into the second bedroom, slamming the door. Uh, it was as he suspected. Jesse was falling for him. This affair would end this weekend. In fact, it was over now. Jesse. Quite simply, the sex was spectacular. But Mark's reaction stung. He watched him walk out of the room and then rolled back onto his back and looked at the ceiling. No displays of affection, rarely allowed to kiss. What was there to like? He taunted himself, but he knew the answer. Everything. This guy's got it. He understood having kids and being a father. And he wasn't fey, he was masculine. He emanated power. Silent power. He wasn't chatty, so Jesse was left to interpret things for himself a lot of the time, but it seemed by Mark's agreeing to go away together that he wasn't wrong. He knew Mark liked him, and they had kissed. Oh, it had been hungry, passionate, and yet tender. Mark had been tender. Jesse knew he was breaking down the tough exterior, and it was the kiss that had told him everything he needed to know. Kisses don't lie. They never lied. And the kiss had told him that Mark was falling for him, and he felt empowered. He felt alive. He felt whole. But what could be next? Again, he taunted himself. It goes on like this for a few years, and then we tell our wives, divorce them, and move in together, maybe get married. It sounded simple as he lay in a Manhattan hotel bed, listening to his lover take a shower. 500 miles away from a wife, soccer games, and responsibilities. Annie. She had managed to get some good painting done while the kids were at a play date, and she waited for the exterminator. She hadn't managed to speak to Jessie, and her black mood was building, intensified by the fact that the exterminator hadn't shown up. She went to the office she shared with Jessie to find the number. When she'd lost the baby, they decided to stop trying for a third and turn the planned nursery into their joint office. Their desks faced each other in the middle of the room, her mess always spilling onto his impossibly neat side, but he never seemed to mind. At night, they would sit and work on various things, and she would catch him watching her over the top of his laptop. What, she would say. Nothing. I, I just wanted to ask you if you wouldn't mind reading this. He'd been working on a novel since she met him. She would read and offer some comment and he would thank her. That was one of the things she adored about their marriage. They shared everything, all feelings and emotions. She cherished their intimacy and took pride in their success. They were a good couple. 
When they fought, it was usually her that started it, and then afterwards she would cry in his arms and say how sorry she was, and he would hold her close, so close she felt she would suffocate, and he would say things like, Don't worry, you can't shake me that easily. I've seen worse. Making her feel that the throne was secure. Annie searched a desk for the number of the exterminator, but found it on Jesse's side. She called and bitched to get 10% off of the surface. As she waited on hold for a manager, she scribbled on a piece of paper. The pattern she created seemed to answer a question she formed in her latest work, and she knew she needed to paint. The manager promised a 10 a.m. visit Monday morning and gave her the discount. She hung up the phone, glad at her success. She always loved saving money, and it made her feel like she could do this wife and mother thing, despite what her mother-in-law thought. She studied what she'd drawn on Jesse's paper and knew she was going to be late picking up the kids. She hoped they'd understand. Mark. Mark made sure all of his plans were set for the remainder of his trip. He had a car for tonight, and Carlos would pick him up in the morning. He made his plans as Jesse lay in the bed in the other room. He moved his stuff after his shower, ignoring Jesse's questions and pleas to talk. Better to send the message now. It was silly to have let Jesse kiss him. He got caught up in the moment of excitement, conquest, and desire. It was silly to have gone as far as he did with him. He wasn't particularly worried about disease. He just felt the moment when Jesse had surrendered to him. And though he enjoyed the win, he was now finished. Bored, really. He'd played along with the burgeoning romantic aspect of this for a lark to test the boundaries of his own power. He learned from years of affairs to get out when it started to look romantic. He was surprised that it had happened with a man. He didn't really expect that. But it appealed to his ego to know his dominance didn't have gender boundaries. But now, with the conquest behind him, he wanted to make it clear that this is where it ended. He wouldn't see him again this weekend, if he didn't run into him in the suite. He was flying out of Westchester anyway, so he wouldn't even see him on the plane. When they got back to Michigan, he'd stop meeting him and taking his calls. Three months was long enough. In fact, too long by Mark Harrington standards. Far too long. Time to move on. Probably not to another man for a while. The thrill was gone. He wondered what he'd conquer next. Kimberly. The phone rang and halted the spiral that had begun. Mark Harrington was in town and wanted to see her that night. Deciding in that instant to delay her plans to leave the city, she became instantly coquettish, businesslike. She joked it would cost him, considering it was last minute. He said he was prepared for that, and they arranged the business end of the transaction. He would wire money into her account, and a car would pick her up at 8 p.m. Harrington in town. That's an interesting turn of events, she mused. She knew better than to let herself fantasize about a John. But it was Harrington. And he'd always pulled at her heart a little. She barely ever admitted to herself how much she'd liked him in the early days of her business. But it had hit her all at once, she remembered. When he was living in New York and a regular customer, he'd often wanted two girls. She'd bring along another girl. Once, 
He'd asked for Viola by name because his mentor, an older man, Carlos, was a regular of Viola's and he wanted to fulfill some fantasy of one black and one white. Her own ferocious response had surprised her. She wasn't about to watch Viola with her mark. She'd made up an excuse and found some other black girl they'd hired, telling him Viola was busy. When Vi found out, that's when she knew Kimberly had feelings for him and told her, He may have money and be handsome, but that guy's an asshole. He doesn't deserve you. Funny. She said something similar to Vi, but she'd not listen. Kimberly stopped her musings, remembering her face, and panic set in. Her face. What the hell would he say about her face? She lectured herself in the mirror. You're not hideous. You just don't look like yourself. No, I I look like someone who's had too much plastic surgery. Fuck, I look like Joan Rivers. She left the mirror and napped. She jumped with Johnny and Vi again. But in this dream, Johnny and Vi were sitting on the steps of her house, and they were laughing as she walked up. They stopped abruptly when they saw her. Vi smiled kindly, and then Johnny would hold out what she imagined was a suicide note. She didn't take it, and woke up crying. She poured herself a drink and did battle with her face. Makeup made her feel a little better. She semi-recognized that face. She dressed. She packed condoms, toys, and tethers. As she waited for the car service, she drank champagne. She played the piano to hide her nervousness. In the first few years when she and Vi actually had girls in this house, everyone knew the piano to be a signal of Kimberly's sadness. Viola was the only one who would come in and sit with her. But now she sat and played in an empty house alone. There is nothing to be sad about. She told herself, Mark Harrington is one of your oldest clients. He stuck by you through price changes and personal overalls. For God's sake, you paid for your first set of boobs. He was the closest thing to a friend she'd ever made through one of her jobs. Next time on Ovid's Flea. Despite her denial, he felt her falling out of love with him. All he could hear was his other self, the formerly dormant boy, fully alive and awake, pushing towards his old life. We're going to arrive just as Mom is cooking her big Saturday night dinner. Albert's Flea is voiced by Patrick Brewis, Anita Charlassier, Dan Johnson, Pat Jones, Harry Wetzel, Reed Winfrey, and C.N. Yates. This is executive produced by Pavan Muzumdar with Jonathan Moises, C.N. Yates, and Pat Jones in conjunction with Arden Park Productions, LLC. The sound engineer is Nicholas Sapunas, and the sound was designed by Nicholas Sapunas and Pat Jones. Ovid's Flea was made possible by the generosity of independent sponsors, as well as those through Kickstarter. Special thanks goes to Monica, Andrew, and Sophia Moore, Polish Scouting Studios and Anja Brozda, and Rick Gomes. To find out more about the world of Ovid's Flea, go to ovidsflea.com.